Our scripture passage this morning comes to us from the book of Esther. We're going to be wrapping up our series in Esther this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at Esther chapter 9, beginning with verse 20, and we're going to take it all the way to the end of the book, which is chapter 10, verse 3. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Just by way of reminder, uh, in our text that we looked at last week, uh, God has preserved uh, the Jews. They were not destroyed by the evil plans of Haman. And so now we get to read about here in this very last section of the book about the celebration uh, that the Jews uh, enacted and about how this book ultimately leaves us uh, on kind of a hinge point. It leaves us hanging, waiting for something greater to come. So let's look at our passage here. Esther chapter 9, beginning with verse 20. Hear now the word of God. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that had been devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in the writing. And King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the people, and on the land, and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. 
This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he lay his eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we rejoice this morning that we have this book that we call Scripture and that we can read it in our own language. Lord, this is a great gift from you, and we pray now that as we read it together and as we hear what you have to tell us, Lord, that you would work it deep within us and that it would change how we live and how we love you. We pray that you, through your Spirit, would accomplish what you want to do here today. We pray these things in the holy and precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, many of you, I know, uh, have been attending our Sunday school class. And in our Sunday school, over, well, over the last couple of months, we've been dealing with the subject of the sacraments. So we've been looking very carefully, as many of you know, at the sacraments of baptism and of the Lord's Supper, dealing with you know, all kinds of questions surrounding them, you know, major texts that uh, teach about them and that sort of thing. And one of the things we've been doing lately is we've been looking at the relationship between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. And there's quite a relationship there, as you guys know if you've been to the class. And, and uh, for example, in that relationship, if you look at the Passover, uh, Passover was that feast that the Jews celebrated to remember God's great deliverance that he had enacted during the Exodus. Uh, and God led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. I'm sure many of you remember that story. And one of the things that God did to deliver them was he sent the plagues against Egypt. And the final plague was to destroy the firstborn son. Right? And so that plague would have affected Israel as well had God not instituted the Passover for them. The Passover was they slaughtered the lamb, had to put the blood on the doorposts, and then God covered over the houses where they were so that the angel of death wouldn't destroy the people of Israel wouldn't destroy their firstborn sons. So, in one sense, the Passover feast that the Israelites celebrated after that event was looking back. It was looking back to God's deliverance that he had brought for them in the Exodus. But, as we find out very clearly from the Old Testament prophets, as well as from the New Testament, the Passover wasn't just looking backward. It was looking forward. It was looking forward to the true Passover lamb that would shed his blood so that God would cover over his people by faith in Christ. And we can see that very clearly. We talked about that in our Sunday school class and how the Lord's Supper mirrors that pattern where the Lord's Supper looks back to the perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And the Lord's Supper also is looking forward to what we read in our call to worship this morning, which is in Revelation, the marriage supper of the lamb. So you can see the Passover and the Lord's Supper are both looking backward and they're looking forward in different ways. And the Bible likes to use this pattern of the same thing, sort of looking backward at God's redemption in the past and looking forward to the fuller final redemption in the future. There's tons of stuff in the scripture that does this. And Esther chapter 9 and 10 here, this very last portion of this book, as we bring our series to a close, is doing this very thing. Esther chapter 9 is looking back at the redemption that God has provided throughout this book, sort of summarizing it, if you will. But then chapter 10 is very clearly looking forward 
In other words, the redemption God provided for, for the Jews here in Esther is not final. There is something greater coming. And Mordecai shows that to us in chapter 10. And the greater thing that we're looking forward to, that this text is explicitly pointing us to, is it is pointing us to the fact that Christ is coming. That God's true peace is not going to come through Mordecai. It's not going to come through peace in the Persian Empire. But God's true peace is going to come through Christ. And again, this is not me just throwing something into the text that's not there. This is explicitly there, and we're going to see how that works out here. So our text is looking back, and it's looking forward. Let's look at how the text is looking back here. This is really all of chapter 9. You'll remember, as I mentioned before, that... Previously, last week, as we were looking at the text, God provided deliverance for the Jews. He saved them from Haman, from the enemies. And what the Jews now do here at the end of chapter 9 is they institute a feast. They institute a kind of celebration to celebrate the redemption that God provided for them. Now, before we actually look at the feast, just note that this is a very common pattern in the Old Testament. In fact, when we find in the Old Testament major events of redemption that God enacted for his people, they almost always uh, come right before a period or a kind of moment of great celebration and gladness. So, for example, uh, the Exodus, right? You have this great event where God delivers his people out of bondage in Egypt. And what happens immediately next in the Exodus account? We get to chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. And we have the Song of Moses, which is Moses' great singing of praise to God as the Israelites thank him for delivering them. And all the people, they sing and they dance to this Song of Moses. Joshua, when he leads the people of Israel into Canaan, when God gives them the promised land that he had promised to Abraham, they enact a great celebration and a covenant renewal immediately after that. Uh, You have in the period of the Judges, Where when God delivers the people of Israel through Deborah and Barak, we have the great song of Deborah, which is a great song of singing about God's deliverance of his people. So in scripture, you've got all these events of celebration immediately following redemption. And that is exactly what we're seeing here in Esther. God now has redeemed his people. He has saved them from their enemies. In this case, saved them from Haman and all of his followers and the Amalekites in general. And now the people of Israel are celebrating. And what they do to celebrate is they enact what they call the Feast of Purim. Now this Feast of Purim is actually explained in the text exactly where the name comes from. And so just by way of review, you'll remember that way back in chapter 3 of Esther, when Haman was busy concocting his plan to wipe out the Jews, to get that edict into effect where they would all be slaughtered on a specific day of the month. Haman, before he came to the king, before he tried to bribe the king with the trillions of dollars, before he did any of that, Haman instead cast lots. This is in chapter 3, verse 7. Haman cast lots, and then he went to the king. Now, in the ancient world, this is something that you did if you wanted to determine the will of the gods. You think, for example, in the book of Jonah, when Jonah's on the boat and he's trying to flee from God to Tarshish, you know, God sends the storm and it's rocking the boat and the waves are crashing in and everyone thinks they're going to die. And so what do the sailors do? They get everyone together. They start casting lots. They start rolling the dice. Why? 
because in the ancient world, rolling the dice was how you determined the will of the gods. The sailors wanted to determine who was the one who was causing all of this commotion. And the lots fell on Jonah. And so Jonah was discovered as being the one who had made God angry. So that's very common in the ancient world. Now what Haman did is he wanted to cast lots to determine the will of the Persian gods to figure out, you know, hey, how should I best go about enacting this edict to wipe out the Jews? And the crazy, ironic thing about that is that the careful student of the Old Testament understands that when Haman rolled the dice, it was not the Persian gods who decided the outcome. Uh, Rather, it was the one true God. In the book of Proverbs, we're told that man cast the lots but God determines the outcome. Well, that's exactly what happened. Haman cast the lots, but the one true God, the God of Israel, determined the outcome. And that outcome, while at one point it seemed like all hope was lost and the Jews were going to be slaughtered, yet God in his sovereignty orchestrated that Haman himself brought about his own destruction. And so the Jews, in this kind of celebration of the irony of God's providence, named this feast the Feast of Purim, or the Feast of Lots, to celebrate God's sovereignty in his delivering of them. Now, in all of this, just going back to what we talked about last week, you might remember, this is pretty amazing that the Jews so universally recognize that what has happened in these last chapters of God saving his people is a redemptive act of God. It's amazing that they all recognize this, if you think about it. Because if you go back in the rest of the Old Testament, what does God often do to bring about these great redemptions? Well, he usually enacts a great array of supernatural works, doesn't he? Think about the Exodus, right? When God delivered the people from from Egypt, man, he was casting plagues on the Egyptians, and he was parting the Red Sea, and then he was crashing the Red Sea down on Pharaoh's army and just just doing all of these amazing things, manna falling from heaven, water coming out of rocks. I mean, amazing, miraculous things. It was so clear and obvious that God was enacting amazing redemption for his people. And yet here in Esther, God doesn't split rocks. God doesn't part seas. Rather, he uses ordinary means to bring about this deliverance for his people. This is actually a great lesson for us, and I think it's something that makes Esther such a profoundly relevant book for Christians. We've talked about this before, but I want to think about it a little more here. Sometimes we are not satisfied with the way that God works. Sometimes we have this tendency as Christians to wish that God would be more obvious in our lives. And some Christian traditions even go so far as to say, you know, if you don't see supernatural works in your life, or if you don't see miracles happening basically every day, or if you're not manifesting some kind of special spiritual gifts, well, then you must just not have very strong faith. Or maybe you might not even be a Christian. There are some Christians that want to say things like that. And and the problem is that, that when we expect miracles in our average everyday life, we're really just missing the whole point of what a miracle actually is in Scripture, what a supernatural work actually is in the Bible. If you look at the whole of the Old Testament, 
you will see that actually most, in fact, we might even be able to say almost all miracles in the Bible happen at three fundamental points of redemptive history. The first is the Exodus, when God enacts a major redemptive event. And what immediately follows all of those supernatural works, all those miracles? Well, the first five books of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When's the next major event of miracles? Well, it's with Elijah and Elisha and the prophets. What immediately follows that? All the writing of the prophetic material. All the prophetical books of Scripture. The third major point is Jesus and the apostles. They do all of these miraculous signs. People are getting raised from the dead. Loaves and fishes are multiplying to the crowds. And then immediately following that, we have the whole writing of the New Testament. And what Paul explains in the book of Ephesians is that the purpose of miracles is to authenticate prophets and apostles of God. The purpose of a a great influx of supernatural, powerful, amazing deeds is to prove that certain people are messengers from God and they have revelation from him that they are delivering to the people and writing down. And that's what we call scripture. So when we today want to say, well, you know, if we don't have see miracles in our lives, if we don't see God working to deliver us in these amazing, spectacular ways, well, we must not be saved. That's just to miss the whole point of miracles in the Bible. They are by their very definition, extraordinary. See, I think there's a sense in which we need to be a little bit more like the Jewish people here in Esther that they were quick to recognize that there was a great redemptive event happening in their midst and it was done completely through ordinary means. Through normal people in normal positions of government executing ordinary decrees and then the Jews exercising those decrees themselves. See, God's redemption came in very ordinary ways here. God was working among them in a very plain, natural way. Now, this is not to say that God cannot do miracles, that he cannot do supernatural events. God created the world. He created science. He created natural law. He can break natural law whenever he wants to. And in fact, he maybe even does do that now and then. We may have heard stories about various things. I don't want to say none of that is true. But to think that we should be seeing miracles every day in life or that God's not working if we don't see these great things happening, that's just to misunderstand Scripture. God's normal way of operating is to use ordinary means. And the Jews here recognize that. And they celebrate the ordinary things that God is doing among them. That's a lesson for us. And they celebrate as they look back what God has done. So here in chapter 9, right, we've got looking back. But now as we turn to chapter 10, after they've instituted this feast, we have these three verses here at the very end. And commentators call this the epilogue because it feels like it's just a couple of sentences tacked on at the end. And in some sense, it feels sort of out of place. Right? Uh, in chapter 9, at the very end, Esther and Mordecai are executing this decree. The Feast of Purim is happening. And then all of a sudden, in verse 1, King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land. Well, it's like, 
that's kind of a random thing to just insert there. I mean, what's the purpose of that? And it just feels like this is out of place in a sense. But it's not. Feelings lie. <laughs> it's not out of place. This, these last verses here have been placed there very specifically. Because while chapter 9 is all about how God's people look back to the redemption that God has provided for them throughout this book, the final three verses here are pointing us forward. They are directing us forward to something that God is going to do in the future. Notice what it says here in verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought, and listen to this, he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all his people. Now, a couple of things here. Note that at the very end, that last word, people, you see that word there? That is a different word in the Hebrew than people in the other part of the verse. For he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all his... That last word is a different word. The first word, he sought the welfare of his people... That word is just the normal Hebrew word for people or nation. But the second word is a loaded theological term. And Mordecai spoke peace to all his people. That word is the word for seed or offspring. And that is the same word used way back in Genesis 3.15. When we are told by God that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent That word seed is the same word used in the Abrahamic covenant. When God made the covenant with Abraham and said that through your seed, Abraham, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, that word seed is a loaded theological term. It doesn't just have reference to people in general. But this is showing the godly line. Mordecai is speaking peace. To the descendants of Abraham, namely to believers. And this is significant because when we come to a similar book, a book that was written about the same time as Esther, namely the book of Zechariah, we see that what Mordecai is doing here at the end of Esther is thoroughly messianic. That is, it is thoroughly related to the work of Christ. And here's what I mean by that. You remember that last year, I taught through the book of Zechariah for Sunday school here. Many of you were listening to that. Probably about half that series was online during the whole COVID lockdown stuff. But um, when I was teaching through that book and we got to Zechariah chapter 9, we saw that Zechariah 9 is a massive prophecy about the coming of Jesus. And in Zechariah 9, we're told, Behold, your king is coming. That king, that Zechariah says, is righteous. He's able to save. He's humble. He will come riding on a donkey. When he comes, there'll be no need for war horses or weapons or chariots because God will be the warrior. This king will set the captives free. This king will rule the world. What a great prophecy about the coming of Christ. And you know what Zechariah says that this king will do when he comes? This king will speak 
peace to the nations. This king will speak peace to the nations. Now Mordecai, coming back to our text here, Mordecai is a type of this king that Zechariah is looking forward to. Look at Mordecai. He is second in command of the Persian Empire. You know what that means? There's a sense in which he is ruler of all of the known world. The Persian Empire controlled almost everything. Mordecai, in this sense, is a king. He is humble. And he is speaking peace to the children of Abraham. See, he's a type of Christ. He is someone who is like Christ in that sense. And so Mordecai, as great as he is, however, is not precisely the king that Zechariah is looking to. Why? Esther actually goes out of its way to explain that while Mordecai is like this king, ruling the world, speaking peace to the nations, yet Mordecai is not precisely the the king being looked to. Why? Verse 1 of chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. The text here is going out of its way to explain King Ahasuerus is really the one who's ruler of the world right now. The king is the one who's the ruler. And it says explicitly, Mordecai is second in rank. goes out of its way to say that. And not only this, but you go up to the end of chapter 9, verse 25... When the text is summarizing what happened, summarizing the redemption of Israel, we are told that the king himself gave the orders in writing to destroy Haman's evil plan and give the edict to save the Jews. Well, hold on a second. If you go back to previous chapters, we see that that's actually not really the case. Remember, the king gave his signet ring to Mordecai and to Esther and said, hey, you guys go do what you want. I don't really care what you do. Just go do it. And Mordecai and Esther stamped the law into effect. But what the text is doing here is it's not giving us a contradiction in saying that the king signed it into effect. But rather what the text is saying is that, strictly speaking, Mordecai and Esther did not have the power to sign the law into effect. They needed the power of the king. Even though Mordecai and Esther put the edict together to save the Jews, they still needed that ring from the king They needed that signet ring to stamp it into effect. And that means that the edict came through the power of the king. And so Esther here is going out of its way to show Mordecai is second in command. Though he is a kind of world ruler, though he is speaking peace to the nations, he is not that true king that Zechariah is looking forward to. He is not the true ruler of the world. He is not the one who will bring lasting peace to the children of Abraham. He is not the one who can do these things. He did not come in riding on a donkey. No, there is a different king that these last verses of Esther is pointing us to, a greater king. And it's in this way that the book of Esther sort of leaves us hanging. Where's, this, where's the true king of Zechariah? Where's the true one who's going to rule the world and speak not just a temporary peace, but a lasting, eternal peace for God's people? Where is that king? 
The Bible is not that concerned with giving us, strictly speaking, perfectly happy endings in biblical books. The Bible is not a Jane Austen novel. As much as I love Jane Austen novels, some of my favorites, uh, they always have one storyline, and it always ends with a marriage, and it's a happy ending. You've got to love that, right? There's nothing better than that. There's a lot of, how a lot of movies end, too. The Bible is not that concerned with giving us super happy endings without cliffhangers until we get to the book of Revelation. You see, the lasting peace cannot be provided by Mordecai. That true, eternal, lasting peace that the people of Abraham have, that the spiritual descendants of Abraham have, comes when we get to Jesus Christ and fully and finally when we get to the end of the book of Revelation where we get to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we get to be in heaven, where there will be perfect shalom, where there will be perfect peace. And how do we get that peace? We got that peace because of this king who came humbly, riding on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem, who came and who died when we were supposed to, who came and did what we couldn't do, who came and paid the price we couldn't pay, who came and lived the life that we couldn't live. That king, King Jesus, is the one to whom this text is pointing us forward to. The redemption that God provided for the Jews here in Esther, brought about by his sovereignty, his silent sovereignty, is a foretaste, a shadow, a sampling of the kind of redemption that Jesus brought. Because you know what? As great as the redemption is that God provided for the Jews here in Esther, it's not eternal. As great as the Jews may celebrate the peace that they have through Mordecai, it's not a lasting peace. Because guess what? As soon as the Persian Empire went down, along came the Greeks, and then the Jews had a whole lot of other problems. Mordecai couldn't bring a lasting peace. Now the king that Esther is pointing us to is the Lord Jesus Christ, who eternally intercedes for us and speaks peace to us. As the children of Abraham, folks, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have that eternal peace that is offered to us in the gospel. That lasting peace. We have it now already. And yet we also await the full consummation of it when the Lord Jesus returns again. And his kingdom is firmly, physically established in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the peace for God's children that we have and that we await. It's the peace brought by the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we rejoice this morning that in your word we find all kinds of types of Jesus. We find people who give Give a sort of taste or a foreshadow who align with the work of Christ in so many significant ways that we see Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. But Lord, we recognize that the salvation that you provided for the Jews in Esther is not an eternal salvation. And it was a temporal salvation, one that was locked in time, one that would be lost with the passing of time. Oh, Lord, as your people now, 
now that Christ has come, our eternal peace has been secured. We as the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have an eternal peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. And not simply a psychological peace. But a peace before a holy God. A God who would otherwise bring wrath and judgment upon us. No, we have peace with you. For the sake of Christ. And because of that peace, we can have perfect 100% assurance that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have the inheritance as sons of God and that we will be with him in paradise and in glory forever and ever, living in that perfect peace of heaven. Oh God, we rejoice in the great things that your son has brought us. We pray all of these things in the holy and the precious name of Jesus. Amen.